Hello, and thank you for joining me for this, the last Matafile episode of the year. In this past year, we've profiled six countries and had an array of experts help us understand conflict and circumstances within these countries a whole lot better. I have to thank you all for supporting this podcast and allowing us to notch over 5,000 downloads. Before we dive into the last episode on Armenia, I have a quick announcement. Thanks to just how well the podcast has been doing, we've had the pleasure of signing with Wizard Radio Media, a UK-based media house with an enormous listenership that's going to aid the distribution of Matafile. This does mean that there will be ads in the podcast, but I honestly cannot wait to get some remuneration from this as it's been taking a lot of time. On a separate note though, If anyone wants to help me out and join on, I'd love to have some support for the coming year with a lot more exciting stories and countries to cover. But enough of that. Let's now talk about the international relations, geography and the economy of the Republic of Armenia. Once again, I'm briefly going to start with the geography of the nation, as it's kind of important in understanding the nation's current diplomatic and financial state. Armenia is a landlocked country situated in the Transcaucasia region. It's a region just southwest of Russia that lies between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Armenia is bordered on the north and the east by Georgia and Azerbaijan, and on the south and the west by Iran, Turkey, and the Azerbaijani exclave of Nakhichevan. Before we talk climate and resources, the burning question I've had while doing the previous two episodes was why do Armenia's neighbours seem to hate it so much? So let's start there, with the international relations of Armenia. And I want to begin with the Islamic Republic of Iran, simply because the relationship is probably the most straightforward. Despite the ideological differences, given that most Armenians belong to an Eastern Christian apostolic church The two nations are strategic partners that share cordial relations. The territory of modern-day Armenia was technically held by Iran or Persia till 1828 when they lost the Russo-Persian War, and despite the constant historic existential threat that the Persian Empire posed to Armenia, the countries now do seem to hold no historic grudge. In fact, the shared history of the two goes back several hundred years to Zoroastrian times and the Armenian diaspora in Iran is one of the largest and oldest Armenian communities in the world as a result. In light of this, the countries cooperate in the field of energy security as an Iranian pipeline supplies Armenia with natural gas and the countries have agreed deals to share hydroelectric power generated by two power plants on the Arax River. They also share extensive tourist ties and share strong trade relations with one another. Now that that's out of the way, let's tackle the slightly more complicated ones, beginning with Turkey. Well, officially, the relation between these two countries are non-existent since normalization talks between the two were annulled by Armenia in 2018. The hatred between these two begins in the 11th century when Seljuk Turks overran Byzantine Anatolia. 
the hatred carried on through the reign of the Ottoman Empire as Armenian revolutionaries tried to fight the oppressive regime. The hatred, of course, peaked in the early 20th century with the horrors of the Armenian Genocide. The skirmishes between small nationalist organizations from the two countries continued for the past century. Surprisingly, Turkey was one of the first countries to recognize Armenian independence after the collapse of the USSR in 1991. Despite this, they refused to establish diplomatic ties with Yerevan and maintained that Nagorno-Karabakh belonged to Azerbaijan. Joint historic commissions have been proposed and reconciliation committees established, but Turkey has refused to acknowledge the Armenian genocide. There was a brief attempt at normalizing bilateral ties in 2009 with the signing of the Zurich Protocols brokered by the United States, but the protocols were heavily criticized by both countries for the concessions it asked them to make and therefore failed to broker peace. Armenia has since been advocating to a repatriation of the land it lost to the Turkish Empire in the early 20th century and a material compensation for the victims of the genocide, but both requests have been rebuffed by Turkey. Due to this, the animosity is both historical in the Turkish denial of the genocide, but also geographic in a border dispute between the two countries. On the other hand, Azerbaijan and Turkey have incredibly strong ties, the reasons for which I'll cover when I do an episode on Azerbaijan. The third neighbor that we should talk about is Georgia. Both countries are former Soviet Union republics and for the most part share positive relations. They've had a long history of cultural and political ties and were united for several periods, including the Bagrationi rule under the Byzantine Empire and of course when they were plundered and invaded by Ottoman and Persian empires simultaneously. There was a short complication with a brief border dispute in 1918. Besides that, the nations have enjoyed cordial relations post-independence in 1991, and since 2011, relations between the two have just been improving. The major differences between the two nations today are not historical, but merely political. That said, Georgia has stayed neutral on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict as it shares borders with both Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's also a lot more focused in mediating ties and decreasing the influence of Russia within Georgia than it is with its other neighbors. And that finally brings us to Azerbaijan. Much like with Turkey, Azerbaijan shares no diplomatic relations with Armenia. The root of this is largely the two wars fought between the two nations, first in 1918 and then the Karabakh War between 1988 and 1994. Most of the current tension is due to the Karabakh War of 1988, which began as Armenian populations in Karabakh voted to leave Azerbaijan and join Armenia. The ethnic and territorial conflict that ensued saw several hundred Azeris and Armenians killed as Azerbaijan did not accept the region's decision to secede to Armenia. In 1994, after six years of fighting, both sides agreed to a ceasefire, and while this did lead to superficial peace, skirmishes continued up until today. And then of course you have the 2020 clashes, which ended on November the 9th with a ceasefire brokered by Russia. The last major player that needs to be addressed is of course Russia. Russia has been an important actor in Armenia for the past 200 years, starting from the Russo-Persian Wars. Armenia was a member of the USSR and bilateral relations were established between the two present-day nations in 1992. 
Armenia is economically reliant on Russia as it imports subsidized Russian gas and Russia owns significant parts of Armenian transport and telecommunications. We'll come back to the economic relationship in a bit. The two also share a history of military cooperation as members of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, and they're both members of the Commonwealth of Independent States. The problem with these alliances is Azerbaijan is also a member of the CSTO. Given that Russia's strategic interest is the maintenance of peace in the region, its incentives actually align with those of NATO and the West in this war. Consequently, the peace deal they brokered, which allowed them to increase their influence in Transcaucasia, was probably the biggest victory by any actor in the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Other than the CSTO and the Commonwealth of Independent States, Armenia is also a member of the Council of Europe, the Asian Development Bank, the IMF, WTO, and participates in NATO's Partnership for Peace program. I've already mentioned that Armenia is landlocked. Other geographic considerations that are noteworthy include that Armenia is on a plateau with a complicated topography. It has the Lesser Caucasus mountain range running through it, and the country has faced several devastating earthquakes due to a tumultuous geography. Over half of the country rests on an elevation of more than 2,000 meters. This means that temperatures are therefore a factor of the elevation at various points in the country, and there's also seasonal variation between a hot summer and a snowy cold winter. In terms of statistics, Armenia is the 138th largest country in the world, with a population of just under 3 million, which is currently ranked 137th globally. Ethnic Armenians make up 98% of the total population in Armenia, and the population is predominantly Christian. Very briefly on its governance, Armenia is a republic, with the president as the head of the state largely holding representational functions, while the prime minister is the head of the government, who exercises political power. The current president is Armin Sargsyan, while the prime minister is Nikol Pashinyan. Among the ex-Soviet states, Armenia is one of the most stable democracies, with the least human rights issues. It still suffers from some lack of personal freedoms, but these have been improving since the Velvet Revolution in 2018. The country is divided up into 10 provinces, with each province having a chief executive. The prime minister is the commander-in-chief for the Armenian military, and the military is also engaged in humanitarian missions in Kosovo and Syria. The economy of Armenia is actually incredibly interesting, and it's been touted as the Caucasian tiger in a book by Soumya Mitra and others. Before we analyze Armenia's sustained economic growth, it's worth contextualizing the state of the Armenian economy in the status quo. Armenia's GDP sits at 11,000 US dollars per capita, adjusted for purchasing power parity. Agriculture accounts for roughly 16% of this, while industry counts for almost 30% and services for the remaining 55% of the GDP. They have a gross external debt of around 10 billion US dollars and a foreign direct investment stock of over $4 billion. Armenia mainly exports minerals and metals to Russia, Switzerland and Iran, and their main imports include natural gas and petroleum from Iran and Russia. These numbers by themselves don't mean very much. So let's have a look at how we got to this point. The Armenian genocide not only caused a massive reduction in human lives, 
but also saw a financial collapse as property and belongings of Armenians were taken away by the Turks. Armenia in 1921 was on the brink of economic collapse and was suffering from disease, hunger and widespread poverty. Vladimir Lenin's Soviet new economic policy from 1921 till 1927 was the first in a series of reforms that began shaping the Armenian economic landscape. The new economic policy helped some small businesses recover from the economic destitution. In the already nationalized economy, it continued state control on large enterprises and banks, but eased the strain of forfeiting harvest to the state on peasants and increased the freedom for small businesses. Stalin's regime revoked this policy and re-established a state monopoly on resources and this monopoly lasted from the 1930s till the end of the communist era in Armenia. In this period, Armenian industry developed as oil and gas pipelines were laid down and hydroelectric plants were constructed. The integration into the Soviet system did mean that the Armenian economy was never self-sufficient and was especially dependent on the Soviet state for their military-industrial complexes, as around 40% of the factories in Armenia were devoted to the defence sector. The downside of this was that during the downfall of the Soviet Union, when military expenditure was heavily slashed, some factories lost most of their business. The second major issue that Armenian industry experienced during the post-Soviet transition was the presence of outdated equipment with significant environmental impacts. The transition from communism hit Armenia hard, as the country saw a 60% decline in output between 1991 and 1993, but it recovered incredibly well after. There are a few key features that have characterized Armenian growth over the past three decades. Growth averaged 5% between 1994 and 2000, which resulted in a modest reduction of poverty, but with surprisingly little impact on unemployment. Growth during this period was further fostered by a sound macroeconomic stance and steady implementation of structural reforms. A final critical contributor to economic growth after independence was the generosity of foreign allies by provision of aid as well as high levels of remittances and private transfers from the large Armenian diaspora. Macroeconomic stabilization came with a decrease of import prices, a stabilization of inflation, and was reflected in the efficiency gains that increased total factor productivity. Labor productivity grew later, from the 2000s, and the exchange rate regime has been incredibly stable since the introduction of a national Armenian currency. The sound macroeconomic policy saw broad-based investment with slight tilts towards housing and infrastructure. Since the late 1990s, Armenia has also managed to register strong export-led growth, despite its geographic limitations. The developments were primarily led by three factors. First, that the exports were based on restructured industrial capacities, which allowed Armenia to gain competitive advantages in the European and Commonwealth of Independent States markets. The second was a readjustment of geographic patterns of trade, which saw increased shares of exports heading to the EU. The third was that the expansion of exports was not only limited to goods but also to services. A consequence of this export-led growth, along with dependence on foreign aid, has been a heavy reliance on external savings to financial investments, and we'll come to the impact of this today in just a second. Two key sectors that are worth mentioning with regards to the economic transition are the agriculture and energy sectors. 
In the early 1990s, Armenia became the first republic to pass a land privatization law, which saw large-scale privatization of Armenian agriculture immediately post-transition. In 1990, Armenia produced less than 1% of its own energy requirement and was heavily reliant on Russian gas imports. An earthquake in 1988 had destroyed its largest non-nuclear thermoelectric power plant and the early 1990s were characterized by severe energy shortages and periodic blackouts. The blockades from Azerbaijan and Turkey post the first Nagorno-Karabakh conflict made this energy shortage a whole lot worse. Countries that helped in the provision of energy were Turkmenistan, Georgia, Russia, and of course later Iran. Armenia also has 11 hydroelectric power plants, two gas-fired thermal plants, and one nuclear power plant in Mersamor, which allow it to meet its energy requirements today. It still suffers a large supply gap, a lack of reliability and efficiency, and the increased expense of relying on imports to fulfill its energy needs, and it'll be interesting to see how the energy sector develops from here on. While there were problems and there was widespread political discontentment, the Armenian economy continued to grow between 2001 and 2010, after which the economy seemed to stabilize. Subsequent governments through this period continued implementing structural reforms of the energy and manufacturing sectors, increasing the privatization of small and medium enterprises, along with optimizing regulatory frameworks. The biggest constraints on this growth were neither the foreign exchange regime, which was quite liberal, nor the capital and labor efficiency gains as education in Armenia was doing incredibly well. The constraints majorly came from the high cost of finances due to low domestic savings and weak financial regulation along with low private appropriability. Private appropriability refers to the ability of firms to retain added value they create for their own benefit. This was not achieved due to weak competitive and legal frameworks, a high cost of backbone services like transport and factors such as corruption. A further problem that aggravated these constraints was the European financial slowdown post the financial crisis. In 2014, the slowdown hit Armenia and the central bank was much less effective in dealing with this slowdown than it had been with handling macroeconomic policy post-Soviet transition. As a result, the Armenian economy is still reeling from the effects of the 2014 slowdown, which included declines in asset prices. That being said, some of the aforementioned issues have started seeing resolution over the past decade. For instance, the credit infrastructure has been reformed, a new pension scheme has been introduced, and corporate transparency has increased. While the Armenian economy has grown post-transition and managed to stabilize, Future growth is all but certain. For starters, the country is still highly dollarized, and here's where we come to the impact of relying on external savings. The dollarization exposes banks to unhedged borrowers and also creates liquidity risks depending on the performance of the Armenian currency. The second problem is the expansion of the financial sector was accompanied by a decline in profitability which is indicated by a large number of non-performing loans and a lack of economies of scale. Both of these, along with low capital buffers, mean that large Armenian banks remain vulnerable to external shocks. This is especially worrying, when you consider just how prone the Armenian economy is to external shocks. 
Armenia is still heavily dependent on Russia and Iran for energy imports and growth has been export-driven. This means that major fluctuations in import or export prices, which have become increasingly likely thanks to the pandemic, might expose the vulnerabilities of the economy. Add to this low consumer confidence due to political turmoil, geographic uncertainty due to the blockades from Azerbaijan and Turkey, and the strain of recuperating from the ongoing conflict, and it becomes clear that the Armenian economy has an interesting few years coming up, to say the least. In this episode, we've covered the international relations, economic landscape, and the geography of Armenia. As always, there is an exciting lineup of interviews that will be released in the new year to further help understand various aspects about the Republic of Armenia. The podcast is going through some incredible changes in the new year. For the time being, thank you so much for tuning in and for supporting the podcast. As always, please do tell your family, friends, and acquaintances about the podcast. Like, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a huge help as we try to expand our listenership over the course of this coming year. If any of you want to send me a Christmas present, a festival greeting, or a New Year's gift, I'd rather you do it in the form of leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or just spreading the word about Matifile. I hope you have a pleasant holiday season and wish you all a very, very happy new year. This has been the final Matifile episode of 2020 and it's been about the Republic of Armenia.